Hi, this is Better Read Than Dead, a literature podcast from a left perspective. I'm Megan. I'm Tristan. I'm Katie. And today we are discussing Persuasion, which is Jane Austen's 1818 novel about an aristocrat woman who marries a super hot Navy guy after being pressured by her gross family to break off her engagement with him seven years before. Yes, it's a uh, it's a bit twisty. There's a lot of characters in this this one. The characters they're aged. Uh, they're like twenty seven and shit. <laughs> oh my god, that's awful. Oh, awful. Old hags. I mean, considering all of Austin's other heroines are right ages seventeen to twenty one, it is uh, I guess a market time time gap. But it is true. Anyway, why do we want to read it, Tristan? Um, yeah, so like academic Austin fans will often do this obnoxious thing where we're like, ah, yes, well, the normies might like Pride and Prejudice the best. But of course, it is Persuasion or Mansfield Park or Emma uh, that is that is Austin's finest work. I and, am uh, the yeah. normies. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> People of complex taste. And I'm really not trying to reproduce that because I think all six of the quote unquote canonical novels have a ton of interesting features. Um, and you, you like like whatever the fuck you like. I will say that I find Pride and Prejudice and Northanger Abbey the most fun of her novels to read, but Persuasion is the book that I really can't stop thinking about for like weeks and weeks anytime I read it. I mean, as an example, I, I just I just taught Persuasion at the end of last term, and so it's been almost a couple months at this point since I've read it, and I, I literally have been thinking about it regularly ever since. I like and so a knock on Austin for a very long time is that she only cares about this narrow and rarefied subset of wealthy Britain. You know, she only writes about the gentry, blah, blah, blah. Raymond Williams has taught us why that's not a good reading, among mm-hmm. other people. Um, <laughs> uh, yes, we are looking at what Williams terms in the country and the city uh, when he's talking about Austin. Uh, quote, the other side of the park wall uh, from where the rural poor are experiencing the effects of industrialization and a centuries long land grab by the bourgeoisie and aristocracy. But interrogating class forms is central to what Austin's doing really across her novels. And Claudia Johnson, a ton of other great critics who have been really attuned to Austin's politics, have shown us uh, that Austin was massively invested in kind of political and ideological critique and analyzing historical structures of her moment. And and I think like so why I really find persuasion so fascinating is I think that it that is like really super clear in this novel um, and, and in very complex ways. So this novel is highly concerned with the connection of the world historical and the intensely personal. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll talk a, about this a lot on the show, but you can't understand Anne Elliott's personal history apart from the international history of the Napoleonic Wars. And finally, ships, boats, and more ships. Boats. So I'm, I'm, I'm at. Now we're getting the good stuff. <laughs> After our airplane episode. Uh, yeah, this is, this is a great, great back to back for me. Yeah, you got to be like a pig in shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so yeah, yeah. No, uh, it's not. It doesn't count as having a politics unless someone at the end of the novel says, I am a communist and you must be one too. Yes, the Richard Wright model, correct. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> that, is, that is right. When you said pig and shit, I was trying to think of the nautical, like barnacle and slime. I, I don't fucking know. <laughs> Hands in a bucket of sperm. Oh, yeah. no, here, I've got a connection for you. Google on YouTube, the sea pig. It is one of the most fucked up organisms I've ever uh, seen. So, sea yeah. pig? Yeah, I'd like to see a sea pig. I don't I I've never I've heard of a sea cow, but yeah. Yeah. not a not sea a sea pig. pig. Yeah. A sea pig, eh? Yep. 
<laughs> okay, let's see Ew. the sea pig. I'm looking at a sea yeah, pig. Yeah, yeah, right, right. What the fuck? Why would you make us look at this? Sits <laughs> <laughs> there. They are uh, very. Un- There's a great YouTube video on, on the, the the unfortunate sea pig, which, among its defensive mechanisms, is to expel its internal organs <laughs> at <laughs> its attacker. Like, this is a cool. Yeah, this, this is. I bet that YouTube video is a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> Ew. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. I'm pigs. so glad I know that. <laughs> but okay. So we've got Jane Austen. And Tristan obviously is here for the boats. Yep. And Megan's here for the butts. They're in, if we're in the Navy, there are butts there. Mm-hmm. There are butts, yes. My question was, and this we can have further discussion about this, of course, but are there butts in here and who has one? So- the in-house expert is going to have to tell us a lot of butt information. Uh, absolutely. I'm here for that. <laughs> so I think this is also the meanest Jane Austen novel, which is why I can I, – I've been persuasioned that, that it's the great one. I don't know. I can't do it. But anyway, um, so persuasion – it's interesting as a concept. I don't know if I've told this story on the podcast before. One time I persuaded my friend who is definitely so much better than math than me that the probability of two people having the same birthday is not one in 365, but involves multiplication or squaring. <laughs> hmm. Yes. It's not my smartest hour, and yet by sheer force of stupidity and argumentation, I wore him down to the point that he agreed with my <laughs> insane and unfounded contention. Um, <laughs> I mean, my I, grandma, to the day she died, refused to believe that heat rises and cold air sinks. What? Does she, those are these are like physics, fucking basics. <laughs> I mean, I you know, my grandmother believed in all kinds of Victorian theories about cold makes you sick. So you know, maybe this not that far off. Oh well, this, don't go outside with wet hair. Let me tell you. Yeah, that'll get you'll get the the apoplexy. Um, oh, no. oh, but. No. No, and and I, 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 Katie, I would, I, you know, being an English guy and not being able to do numbers, I would believe if you told me that it's not one in three hundred sixty-five. So, <laughs> I was very sure that that couldn't be right. I didn't know what it was, but I knew it had to be something else. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's that's me doing math. Tristan's with me. We're gonna we're gonna create some different numbers. <laughs> so uh i think that jane austen would be super proud of me for doing that and so <laughs> i think i should get some kind of an award or, or or you know a similar recognition but yeah this book is just so mean this book is just so mean like as mean as you should be to me for doing that stupid thing with the with the birthday that's how mean jane austen is this whole novel it's just people who ride boats too much. They all look like shit. Mm-hmm. If you're 31 and a widow, you live in a bath like a frog, <laughs> but you have a cheerful disposition. I guess it's okay. Yeah. And so as I as I know that I've discussed before, James Fenimore Cooper wrote his own quote unquote Jane Austen novel. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know there's much to enjoy about James Fenimore Cooper. He is not a good writer. <laughs> no, I actually pulled out some 
uh, old notes I had on James Fenimore Cooper from college. No one takes Cooper seriously as a writer. No one ever has. <laughs> so, so anyway, I, I, yeah. Oh, sorry. I will say his his rest stop on the New Jersey per- Turnpike though has has saved me many times. <laughs> oh yeah, if you gotta pee, he's a hero. Man, you guys are sure gonna enjoy the shit that Terry Eagleton says about Lawrence next week because it is <laughs> fucking great. Wait, does does Terry Eagleton also have a, a Jersey Turnpike uh, rest stop named after him? Because that would be awesome. I don't think that English people generally do that. <laughs> that's like a that's like being knighted in America if you get a Turnpike stop named after you. It's nobility. That's right. It's so this book is called Precaution. It is one oh of the God. absolute worst things that I've ever read and I've read all the Dune books, the Frank Herbert ones, <laughs> I mean all of them, even the one where the guy gets turned into a body hopping sex mannequin and the worm <laughs> stuff and everyone getting high on worm excretions and it's a whole universe galactic stupidity <laughs> and Precaution is somehow stupider. I um, believe it. It sounds it. I mean just the title itself. Yes. <laughs> I I want to find this. I have this poll. I have this queued up here. Encyclopedia Britannica, which is not known for bitchiness. <laughs> no, uh, certainly not. Here is what here's the Britannica hot take on precaution. For 10 years after his marriage, Cooper led the active but unproductive life of a dilettante, dabbling in <laughs> agriculture, politics, the American Bible Society, and the Westchester militia. It was in this amateur spirit that he wrote and published his first fiction, reputedly oh, wow. on a challenge from his wife. Uh huh. Precaution. Oh, he pinged it. Except that was a good book. <laughs> yeah, this was different, kind of different. Uh, Precaution 1820 was a plodding imitation of Jane Austen's novels of English gentry manners. It's mainly interesting today as a document in the history of American cultural colonialism and as an example of a clumsy attempt to imitate Jane Austen's investigation of the ironic discrepancy wow. between illusion and yeah. reality. Oh, man. That is that is amazing. Yeah. Like, never thought I would learn that much from Encyclopedia Britannica, frankly. Yeah. No. You just got britannica Um, Are you setting us up right now to read Last of the Mohicans next, uh, Last of the Mohicans next season? Is that what's we, happening? We really do have to read it. You know I am. Oh, yeah, we absolutely do. There's so many illustrated editions from like the 1940s to the 1960s, many of them in comic book form. Oh, yeah, yeah, shit. And there's the one, Meg, I think you showed us that the guys has a lot of muscles. Illustrated classics, yeah, which uh, the illustrated classics of um, Taipei is also a lot of fun. Yeah, I can imagine. Whose idea was this shit? <laughs> uh, some crumb bum who was like, I have a press and all the money in the world. What could we do with it? Anyway, uh, well, it is a truth universally acknowledged that I have been wrong about Jane Austen in the past, and I think I've taken enough shit for it. But I think of you to admit. I admit it. And I'm ha- look, I'm I am happy to be wrong. I'm happy to read more of her stuff. Um, one of the things I like about Austin's heroines is that they seem to be like very cool, smart, like really pretty kind women who are surrounded by an absolute cadre of dipshits. Yep. Just like one dipshit after another. Yep. Mm-hmm. A parade. 
a Mummer's Day parade. A Mummer's <laughs> parade of dipshits. And even though the like the dipshittiest of the dipshits in this book are cousins instead of sisters, one of the sisters in this is such a wah wah big baby pee pants that if I were one of Jane Austen's actual sisters, I would have been like, I I feel that we should have a talk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like if I wrote a novel with my with with two random sisters in it, I'm pretty sure I would get some very iffy text messages that were like excuse me yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. You receive no. feedback yeah, yeah and, and austin allegedly liked her sister but uh you know <laughs> I, I, allegedly yeah oh, i mean I you're right it, this, but it's too like i would definitely get calls no i mean this gives us this maybe gives us some uh some other historical <laughs> evidence to consider there yeah she also includes in this volume these two hellion children who have been barfed straight out of Satan's own maw. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I, I have an extremely strong two-year-old, and I could still definitely be able to like throw her off myself if she were clinging on. And this heroine cannot even claw a two-year-old off of herself. Nope. That is how powerfully satanic this child is. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it's an evil child. Evil, and um, uh, I know that Austin is genuinely interested in the domestic drama and comedy, although less here. But I still can't help but be impressed by the degree to which she's skeptical about the institution of marriage. I like I mm-hmm. I love the marriage plot that is anti marriage in a lot of ways, and I think it's one of those things about her that I will never not love. Yeah, yeah, no, it's that that old, which I think I've I've quoted this on the show. And I was like, "Who said that?" I'll look it up and then never do. But about the the the, the English novel ending in a marriage and the French novel like starting basically with a marriage or a divorce and uh, ending with per- a suicide. Yeah, yeah. Well, pretty much. And persuasion, I mean, it's not, it doesn't go that far, but it's not also that like, yay, the happy marriage at the end. We do kind of start with the wreck, the wreckage of a previous relationship. Yeah, I mean, the French novels also like the 18th, well, 18th and 19th century novel could basically be called fuck around, find Mm -hmm. out. Yep. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Like Stendhal and Flaubert and all those. Anyway, I like them very much, but I seem to be alone in that opinion. (laughs) Um, I also sent you both in the chat a picture of an axolotl, which is like a sea pig, only cute. (laughs) <laughs> i there's a bitmoji axolotl oh yeah no see that's that's much nicer than the than yeah. the sea pig they yeah. got a cute cute face they have an incredibly cute face i i can't bring myself to own one but a little bit of me wants to oh you just look how cute it is. you just look at pictures honestly yeah just so it's cute um okay so today we're talking about bodies and their sort of fragility or wearing away and about uh, physical space, about the style of this novel compared to her others, and about changing class forms. So, um, Tristan, tell us what happens. Well, I'm going to start by quoting the very first couple paragraphs of Persuasion, because I think they're amazing, um, and they really do set up so much of what's happening in this novel. <clears throat> Sir Walter Elliot of Kelly and Shaw in Somersetshire was a man who, for his own amusement, never took up any book but the Baronetage. There he found occupation for an idle hour and consolation in a distressed one. There his faculties were roused into admiration and respect by contemplating the limited remnant of the earliest patents. 
there any unwelcome sensations arising from domestic affairs changed naturally into pity and contempt as he turned over the almost endless creation to the last century. And there, if every other leaf were powerless, he could read his own history with an interest which never failed. This was at the page at which the favorite volume always opened. Elliot of Kelly and Chall, Walter Elliot, born March 1st, 1760, married July 15th, 1784, Elizabeth, daughter of James Stevenson, Esquire of South Park and the Count of Gloucester, by which lady who died 1801, he has issue, Elizabeth, born June 1st, 1785, and born August 8th, 1787, a stillborn son, November 5th, 1789, Mary, born November 20th, 1791. Honestly, I agree. I think it is one of the funniest openings I've ever read. I mean, it is the preposterousness of this idiot's fixations. I only read one book and it's only about me. And also I have 50,000 mirrors. I mean, just like, so this is a compendium. And and also, I have to just say what a baronet is, uh, which why would anyone know that? Um, It was like, I think it was a Stuart era title. It's like, it's fake nobility. So it's a hereditary title, but that does not actually allow you to sit in the, the House of Lords. And so like, he is like fake nobility and just obsessed with his own fanciness and looking, it's like, oh, like they've made too many of me in the last century. And those are, those are fake. You know, it's just it. There's just so much preposterousness that's just like right on its fucking face and it's great i just love the idea of a guy who an adult man who has his baby book with his two <laughs> little feet yeah. you know pressed into clay or whatever and that's yeah. his favorite book mm-hmm. yes no it's it, it's it's like reading the phone book only more boring and like more pretentious right like much more pretentious yeah it, it's it's worse. It's so much worse than Googling yourself. Yeah. Oh, no. But I guess it is sort of like Googling yourself. It well, is. when you Google yourself, you're going to find embarrassing shit. And this has the embarrassing shit all just like weaned out of it. Yeah. Yeah. The act yeah. itself. It's where the embarrassment lies. And yeah, no, I, I agree, uh, Katie. Like this is this is the meanest. Uh, and I think, yeah, I think bestest of all Austin openings. Uh, like far more gloriously mean than Northanger Abbey's. Like, wow, Catherine Moreland is the boringest heroine ever, which is kind of mean, but you know, this, there's like there's a sweetness to it. Far meaner than Pride and Prejudice is mocking of Mrs. Bennett and her obsession with finding her daughter's husbands, because Catherine Moreland turns out to be a fantastic heroine, and Mrs. Bennett, ridiculous as she is, is very right that her daughter's are economically precarious uh, since the Bennett state is entailed away to the closest male heir. Um, go back and listen to it. Was that episode six of the or five of the pod? I think it's it's good. Wasn't it? It's early. It's episode. early on. It was, I, I think it's the moment when when we really take off. Yeah, no, it was. It's it's a great episode, um, right? But uh, unlike unlike uh, Mrs. Bennett or Catherine Moreland, there is no redeeming quality whatsoever to Sir Walter Elliot Baronet of Kelly and Hall. He is through and through a risible dipshit, a man obsessed with his own beauty and class position. Uh, the novel calls him a conceited, silly father, which is, uh, you know, maybe the nicest thing is that is said about him in the novel. And so, so why start with him? Well, uh, there's a couple things here that I think are important to the whole novel. So one is the idea of time and the different meaning time has for men and women due to the gender constructions of the age. Um, the other is that the class that Sir Walter represents, uh, which is the upper gentry and lower, in this case, just fake aristocracy, despite Sir Walter's preternatural youthfulness, which result in the novel's terms results basically from the fact that he's never had to work or really care about anything his entire life. He, he's just the most navel-gazing, insufferable, and decrepit person, and, and like representative of a group that is as such that you can possibly imagine. 
He's navel gazing, but he doesn't like gazing at people in the Navy who live in his house. Oh, oh bird. Yeah, we'll get there. That was that was good. I, that, was, that was good. I, I like wouldn't that. say it was good. <laughs> he's so just like it's it's he's the the um, the model of the hot guy. And then he opens his mouth and you're like, oh, not hot at all. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. <laughs> right. Like you guys like, well, if he would just shut up, he would be OK. But it's like his 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 what it comes out of his mouth is so stupid that just makes it impossible, you know? But yeah, anyway, like so many dumb fuck aristocrats before him, Sir Walter is heavily in debt and has no clue how to clear the debt. When his wife was alive, we're told, uh, she ran a tight ship, but Sir Walter is an incompetent doofus who likes to spend all his money on trivial bullshit. So like, incidentally, there's a reverse uh, Mr. Bennett scenario here. So <laughs> if you think back to Pride and Prejudice, recall that Mr. Bennett got super horny for Mrs. Bennett because she was young and hot and they got married. And then he was like, oh, my God, she's a huge dumbass. Um, yeah. Like that happens. Like <laughs> basically Austin tells us that happens, uh, you know, with the, with the gender as reversed in, 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 in the, the Elliot's case. She was stigmatized. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Sure. So so this is a direct quote. Uh, Sir Walter's good looks at his rag had one fair claim on his attachment, since to them he must have owed a wife of a very superior character to anything discerned by his own. <laughs> Lady Elliot oh, had, had been an excellent woman, sensible and amiable, whose judgment and conduct, if they might be pardoned, the youthful infatuation which made her Lady Elliot. So she again, she's like, oh shit, man. Like, you know, he was hot, and then we got married, and he's the worst person I've ever met. She's not wrong. No. Sir Walter's eldest daughter, Elizabeth, is just as useless as he is. His youngest daughter, Mary, is similarly useless. And oh, in but any- she's way more annoying. I find her so fucking annoying. She's oh, terrible. she's so funny, though. It's yeah. She's so yeah, bad she that is. she's good. Yeah, 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 yeah. I love her. She's awful. Well, and it's it's like Elizabeth is like, ooh, like my other sisters aren't fa- I'm I'm the oldest, or well, particularly Anne, because Anne's like sort of seems to be out of the marriage economy. So she's just kind of like very ha- haughty and uh, you know doesn't really engage uh, as a presence. Whereas Mary is like, pay attention to me, you know, like I'm <laughs> sick. Unless there's a party. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sick, guys, you know, my tummy hurts. My children are terrible. Yeah. I want to leave them for a month. I mean, her chil- <laughs> her children are terrible. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but fair like, enough, if, fair enough. if one of your kids is terrible, that's their personality. But if both of your kids are terrible, that's your it, fault. And you, I am yeah. not going back uh, on that. Yeah. Uh, no, and I and I think that is very much what the novels implying. So yeah, Mary also sucks. Uh, she's married off to Charles Musgrove, who's the son of a neighboring squire. Uh, again, you know, read like squire means rich dude without, but without Sir Walter's title, so not not a nobleman, but but rich and and just fancy enough for Sir Walter's approval. In fact, there's only one Elliot who isn't a bumbling rube, and that is Anne, the smartest of the lot, her dearly departed mom's favorite, and whom because smart, no one listens to. This is a little, come on, Jane Austen. <laughs> yeah, I know. This is, I know. <laughs> turn it down a little bit. Yeah, yeah. We don't yeah, need yeah. to crank to 11. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, you're kind of, you're kind of persuading me about that. Yeah, so Anne is our heroine, uh, and Anne is distinguished from Austen's other heroines, as many critics have noted. And as I said, by not being funny. By not true. being funny, really not being funny, kind of 
just painfully in her own head. Uh, and she has a backstory, which is, you know, different for Austin novels because she's old. She's 27. Oh, so <laughs> old. It's so, disgusting. Her, her great love is actually in the past. When she was 19, she was engaged to a Royal Navy officer who is now Captain Frederick Wentworth. 877 cash now. (laughs) (laughs) Call JG. Call Frederick Wentworth. 877. Yeah, cash. Yeah, uh, but she was talked out of this engagement by both her asshole family and much more importantly by this friend and neighbor, uh, Lady Russell, who thought Anne could do better uh, at the time. Which is, I mean, like, she's that she was also being classist. But I also, it's like this guy, I mean, you know, he's in this ex- exceedingly dangerous profession. He has no money at all right now. Like, I'm not, I, I don't know that, like, we could entirely dismiss what Lady Russell was saying, even if it did make Anne, uh, you know, unhappy for the about a decade afterwards. She, she did. She might have had a point, but whenever people are saying, you're too good for this guy, yeah. you usually have a bunch of shitheads around you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, sure. you know, there's exceptions, exceptions to every rule, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and and right, and I mean, because it's not like you're too good for him because like he's just it'd be an absolute like piece of shit. It's that like because he's not fancy enough is basically right. what that constitutes, you yeah. know. So yeah, uh, so basically for the past seven or eight years, Anne has sat around reading the Navy lists for news of Frederick and generally living in the claustrophobia of regret, unfulfilled desire, and being the smartest person in a house full of dumb shits. Um, I mean, <laughs> what come fun. On. <laughs> come on. Uh, <laughs> So here's how Anne is kind of introduced in these terms. A few years before, Anne Elliot had been a very pretty girl, but her bloom had vanished early, which is such a- Oh, fuck you. I know, it is. It's, 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 and it's just, okay, well, what does that, the the bloom uh, mean? I mean, it's, I think it's obviously tied to, you know, the idea of like, oh, you've got to produce a lot of children to keep the aristocracy going. If there's anything I felt about being pregnant, it was that I looked great. (laughs) Bloom. Blooming. Bloom. And not swollen and awful. <laughs> That's blooming in a way. No, uh, certainly nauseous. <laughs> okay, yeah. Uh, so her blooms vanished, and even in its height, her father had found little to admire in her. So totally different were her delicate features and mild dark eyes from his own. There could be nothing in them now that she was faded and thin to excite his esteem. Oh, skinny oh. legend. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone hates me because I'm too skinny. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. I'll stop. No, no, no. I mean, it's, yeah. Well, it, it's, I, there's, yeah, there's definitely like sickness, sickliness implied kind of here. Or at least that's how Walter Walter reads it. Yeah. Uh, no, I, know, I know we're not in modern day. <laughs> not enough banging might also be implied <laughs> he had never indulged much hope uh he had now he had now none of ever reading her name in any other page uh of his favorite work all equality of alliance must rest with elizabeth for mary had merely connected herself with an old country family of respectability and large fortune and had therefore given all the honor and received none <laughs> Which is completely not true. I mean, it's yeah. like the Musgroves have so much more economic power than, than the Elliots do, but, you know, they don't have the title. Uh, so Elizabeth one day or other would marry Sue Blaine, of course. The uh, thought is that Anne is not, Anne has lost her chance there. But uh, Captain Wentworth is about to come back into her life. Because in order to try to get out of the heaps of debt he's fallen into, Lady Russell persuades Sir Walter to move to Bath and let Kelly and Chal to someone who actually has disposable income of any kind. 
And that person is an Admiral Croft, who is a hero of the Battle of Trafalgar, and and has made a fortune in the Napoleonic Wars, capturing French ships. Um, so actually, in, in this era, this is interesting historical detail: the officers of a ship, of a navy ship, and to a much lower percentage, the crew as well, divided prize money. So, like, if you captured a vessel, it's like, yeah, however much that was worth, you, you got a big bonus for that. Isn't it part of like the contract, right? That it's like a certain percentage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, it's 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 spelled out. In fact, that you know that the captain we get x percent and then like the lieutenants like a, a slightly lower and then when you're down to the crew it's like it's a fraction but it's still i mean you know you you would get the but bunch of shiny gold coins to take out to the tavern oh <laughs> yeah yeah no i just yeah. remember it from some you know what probably from taboo yeah 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 well and and, and, and moby dick uh it's not about and capturing moby. ships but it's the, the 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 price of the cargo is like is divide that's how pay is like figured yeah uh so yeah and sir admiral croft is generally a person a far greater importance to the nation and the business of empire than sir walter which sir walter doesn't acknowledge uh but you know money talks and he needs money and to the extent sir walter is even able to overlook the fact that sailors get sunburned uh this is this is a great moment in the novel um then i take it for granted observes sir walter that his face is about as orange as the cuffs and capes of my livery which makes him so mad that this guy who has a suntan is gonna like you know be be renting his house uh, oh and- i want somebody from <laughs> boca renting my house <laughs> yeah right. right 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 and it you know again just an extremely normal thing to get fixated on also, I want to call back to the idea of Sir Walter's vanity and youthfulness, uh, the meaning of time to the people actually facing violence and hardship on behalf of the British state, rather than the slothful beneficiaries of that imperial labor like Sir Walter is a huge theme in this novel. Yeah. And so anyway, so after Sir Walter's quip about Admiral Croft being orange, Mrs. Clay, who is like the the daughter of Sir Walter's lawyer, and she's definitely trying to bone <laughs> Sir Walter. She's got freckles. Um, yeah, she has. Yeah, which the novels like. I mean, how? I mean, how could? How could he? Like, he's he's such a fool for youth. He, he overlooks her freckles and the fact that one of her teeth is misaligned. <laughs> but, but anyway, Mrs. Clay uh, says, "Fame." This is a the famous line from the novel: "The sea is no beautifier. Sailors do grow old betimes." Like, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, like, <laughs> but anyway, so here's the thing. Admiral Croft's wife is Frederick Wentworth's sister, something no one else other than Anne recognizes, like they've totally forgotten this guy existed, but she like realizes it immediately. Um, And she, of course, has all of the feelings. She is just as into Frederick as ever. So again, uh, more than seven years were gone since this little history of sorrowful interest had reached its close and time had softened down much, perhaps nearly all of peculiar attachment to him. But she had been too dependent on time alone. No aid had been given in change of place, except in one visit to Bath soon after the rupture, or in any novelty or enlargement of society. No one had ever come within the Kellyan circle who could bear a comparison with Frederick Wentworth as he stood in her memory. No second attachment, the only thoroughly natural, happy, and sufficient cure at her time of life, had been possible to the to- nice tone of her mind, the fastidiousness of her taste in the small limits of the society around them. And that's another uh, thing, which the, at the end of the summary, we'll kind of come back to that, that, you know, as a way of dealing with, you know, kind of uh, like psychological loss or uh, like unfulfilled desire that, you know, uh, men go out and do empire and shit. And like women just kind of, you know, women of Anne Elliott's class option is to kind of sit at home. 
mm-hmm. um, and and just that the narrowly circumscribed social sphere as just the limits that it places on the development of your uh, kind of future interiority and future psychological life is is uh, is like a big a big big theme in the novel. So the next 150 pages are the story of Anne and Frederick getting back together. Yeah, it is. Yeah, 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 right. Although there are some minor mishaps along the way. There are. Like, I I agree that this novel is not nearly as funny consistently as Pride and Prejudice, but there are, like, some amazingly comic moments that happen uh, throughout it, like, often uh, dealing with those those kind of, uh, those mishaps and misadventures, although some of those mishaps. you mean when I completely boned it and thought like oh this lady falling and bonking her head is funny and then it turns out to be not even a little bit funny yeah 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 yeah. no no like that that definitely sets up what you think is going to be like a cut like oh she sprayed her ankle and then some romantic comedy ensued and it's like no she like she fucked her head half her brains fell out yeah i mean and i of course felt terrible but i do think that it was like set up in such a way that it was like if you've read austin before this is going to be like good job bonking your head bonky yeah i i didn't even feel bad at all because get this She's not real. Hey. <laughs> I know. It's how I misread it. <laughs> I know she's not real. Oh, Shit. yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so, again, they're all right. We're going to take 150 pages to get Anne and Frederick back together. Anne uh, being awkward and weird and generally trying to disappear into her own skin because her life sucks and she has nothing in common with her awful family. Is she uh, 13? <laughs> yeah. I mean, but also, uh, well, she's been horny for one dude for seven years. She has. Yeah, that's laser yeah. focused horniness. Yeah. And, and, and you I could will cut diamond with that horny. <laughs> and I will say in her defense, her family really does suck. I mean, all 13 year olds think beautiful. their family sucks. Yeah. yeah. But these are these are just the absolute scum of the earth. And Frederick is, you know, he's very into still being very mad. TM. Uh, so when, and he, he just kind of, he's like, when they meet, he's just kind of like ignores her as very like, I'm, I'm intentionally ignoring you. So like when Elizabeth and Sir Walter go off to bath after Admiral Croft assigned his lease and stays in the neighborhood with her terrible youngest sister, Mary and the brother-in-law, Charles Musgrove. And there are terrible kids who are like, yeah, as Megan said, like absolute hell children. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, Frederick comes to stay with the Crofts. So, so Anne and Frederick get to see each other constantly. Because Austin was even more of a shiphead than me, her two brothers, <laughs> they, were, they were. So a citation needed. Yeah. Uh, well, here's, here's the citation. Her, t- her two <laughs> brothers were, were sailors who would go on to be BFDs in the Royal Navy after her death. And, and yeah, so she makes the Crofts like kind of charming as hell. Like they keep getting into accidents. Oh, they're, they're very charming. Yeah, they're cute. They're great. They're great. They, they keep getting into accidents in their little open top carriage because they have no idea how land works, which is great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Drive straight into a ditch. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, the we sails were- weren't functioning. <laughs> yeah, the say yeah. I dropped anchor, but nothing happened. Oh, yeah. Another cute thing about the Croft. Mrs. Croft has been like all over the world with the Admiral. And she has this little argument with Frederick, her brother, about women on ships. And Frederick's like, OMG, the ladies are too dainty and tis bad luck or whatever. And Mrs. Croft is all like, arg, vasty lovers. <laughs> like eight bells in a watch. Like, fetch me ye old grog. And uh, <laughs> I mean, it's like, I mean, yes, obviously that's not what she says, but it's not that far from it, to be honest with you. <laughs> like, <laughs> She's the lady of the, she's the little mermaid. 
Yeah. She really is the best. She's no, she's great. They both of the Crofts are great. And so yeah, but she's like as far from gentry slash aristocratic ideas of femininity as the sailors are from gentry aristocratic ideas of masculinity, I think is a is one of the the uh concepts the novel's setting up. Well, you know, Sir Walt really can't believe that somebody this ballsy would be trying to take care of his house. No, 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 exactly. Um, and yeah, when balls, just like, I mean, despite the fact that they keep running their carriage into the ditch, like just, uh, you know, can obviously do things other than stare at themselves in the yeah. mirror. Uh, there's, there's a script, which I don't, I don't have. They're this like in, nice it, to each other. That's, that's cool. Yeah, they're nice to each other. They actually like each other's company. Other people like them. Um, there's this great uh, line, which I did. I didn't quote this, but where uh, uh, where Ad is talking to Admiral Croft, it's like, oh yeah, I got rid of all of your father's mirrors from his bedroom because I only need like one, like a normal, like person. a normal ass <laughs> human being. <laughs> oh, it, it is funny when the Crofts are are like. Oh, the wind whistles through the cabinets in your house, just like it did on the shitty boat we were on, and it makes <laughs> us feel very at home. Yeah, yeah, yeah yes. Yeah. So they get one in there. They're they're nice, but they get some in there. Yeah, no, for sure. Well, and I also, I mean, yeah, like I also think that they like because it's like, oh, I have done them this great honor by letting them rent my house, and it's clear that the Crofts do not give the slightest fuck about Sir Walter, or like, it's like, oh, are you you're a baron and is that fancy? Whatever, you know. <laughs> we're doing it because you're the one out of money dummy yeah exactly we just want a nice house in the country uh for 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 vacation so anyway as i said like frederick is kind of being really annoying at this point in the novel he still is doing the big mad sad sack routine and he's making himself flirt with the musgrove sisters uh, so Anne Ann and mary sisters-in-law it seems like he has something going with louisa until a disaster this is what we were talking about the head breaking part this disastrous family outing to lime regis which is this little port on the south coast of england England and the Musgroves and Anne and Frederick have gone there to see some of Frederick's sailor friends. And right when they're about to, so it's it's like a day trip, it's almost a day trip from um from from uh where the Musgroves are and, and Kelly and Shaw. Right when they're about to leave, Louisa is being a big dumbass, asking Frederick to jump her down from the cob, which is this. I mean, and this is real. Like, I mean, this is a, the Lime Regis is a real place. Like, this is a real uh, uh, medieval fortification that runs around the harbor. And he, she's like, "Yeah, jump me down." And and she he she mistimes, uh, falls, hits her head, and is fucked up. Like, I mean, unconscious, very severe concussion. Everyone thinks she's dead, and she spends the next several weeks engaged in that great pastime of wealthy Regency women, which is being sick. Now, Katie, do you remember this? Because I feel like the name Louisa can be challenging for you sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Who? (laughs) Don't worry about it. She's not that important. Which which novel was that again that that happened in? Wheeland. 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 So that's right. See, that's I, for, I forgot. I did the same thing. <laughs> what I've read 400 times. <laughs> <laughs> but unlike you know often like this and, and like so mary must grow mary you know uh, Anne's sister is she's also oh, and i'm sick come take care of me but she's not actually sick she's just kind of throwing a big pity party for herself like like so this is different from that character who's fairly um you know like kind of commonplace in fiction of this era in that like no like she knocked her fucking brains out yeah. on, the, on the sidewalk you know yep, so she really did and what there's also like i mean I, we can talk about this a bit but 
there's there are a lot of like bodies getting injured like so one of the terrible musgrove kids early in the novel like breaks his collarbone which is just i mean you know i like pretty serious and also like just not something that happens in a lot of austin's other fiction you know Um, it's quite painful and it can't be set you just have to sit like perfectly still yeah and and i and and you know like i have i actually have a lot of questions about that i mean we can you know maybe we'll talk more about this a bit later but i mean one thing i was thinking in this regard and and it's not i mean a lot of critics i think have, have speculated on this the Navy was like an extremely brutal or I mean, be it at sea generally profession in that, uh, you know, I mean, so Nelson, you know, the the uh, admiral of the fleet at Trafalgar, he in his like official portraits, he's missing an arm and an eye, which is like, yeah, that's what happened to sailors, you know, and and like that does, you know, so that hasn't happened to any of the sailors in the novel, but like. You know, I do wonder if there's something about that kind of sense of like physical, like the the, the possibility of physical violence or just like the body as a thing that can break that like in some way, like the home is reproducing this, like what happens out there in the empire or something like that. Well, break and, and, and wear away, right? Yes. So like both of those seem really important. Yes, for sure. For sure. Uh, so so anyway so yeah Anne or uh, uh, Louisa is sick in bed. Frederick is beside himself, and Anne is like, "Well, that's all over because he's obviously in love with her." But he's not, uh, though, though we don't learn that just yet. So Louisa does get better slowly, and, and we later learn falls for Frederick's morose Fred, Captain Bedwick. Um, Who loves right. poems. Yeah, he's, I mean, like, he, so he's a cat type that it's like, it's tragic, but it's also like very clearly bordering on the comic. So like, his fiance died. So this is the clearly tragic right his fiance died while captain benwick uh was was still at sea and then but like the comic is that he's been doing this obnoxious like john keats but can't write good poetry act ever since like you know it, it it's good that uh this happened that, that louisa fell for captain benwick and vice versa because frederick does realize that he's still in love with Anne. color me surprised yeah right i mean how like this I, how would this have worked out differently right so the rest of the novel uh, takes place in Bath, where Sir Walter is living, um, and where a lot of Navy officers are also doing the health spa thing, which that which makes him kind of uncomfortable. So I mean, there's like Bath at this moment is like less fancy than it had been. So actually, like Austin, right when her father died, so this is about ten years before she started publishing novels. Like she lived in Bath for a while, and they, I mean, the Austins were very middle class, and so like it, it's kind of like moment of like high fashion has waned a bit. Which I mean, I think there's an implication there as well that like you know sir walter why he can afford this is that it's not it's not like what it once was but he also sees all these sailors who this is their big vacation spot now and he's you know he's very like oh well you know i'm like who who are these commoners that are are polluting my social land i didn't know we were here for fleet week yeah right yeah yeah, exactly yeah yeah fleet week now the the hot the hot sailors who are unfortunately are injured in town yeah (laughs) so yeah so we're in bath for the rest of this um Anne and frederick keep having these encounters where she's like oh shit i think he might still be into me uh musical fucking chairs yes (laughs) yes yes god yeah all all these fucking like painful social situation but but yeah like yeah anyway frederick uh so there's this i I, this is kind of a plot point that i'm glossing over but Anne has this asshole uh cousin mr elliot who uh basically he'll get kelly and child once her walter dies since there's no male heir and 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 mr elliot is in bath and and frederick sees uh him flirting with Anne, and that you know he's getting he's getting really jealous uh, about this uh mr elliot is an interesting character like 
Sir Walter like tried to get him to marry Elizabeth like a decade before, and 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 Mister Elliot was like, "Yeah, fuck that, I don't give a shit." But but like now, like his wife has died, and suddenly he's super into uh, like a rapprochement with Sir Walter and his family, which that that seems suspicious, right? Yeah. Um, like Let's no look sub- into that. Yeah, no no subterfuge could be happening here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so have Eddie, you yeah, ever so, read a novel? You couldn't know what was going on. <laughs> yeah, right. seems like everything's on the up and up to me. He's a nice cousin. Well, what's funny is Sir Walter doesn't suspect that anything is well, going on because he's an idiot. He's like, oh yes, he, I, finally that boy, uh, you know, did, did, did family uh, honor the right way or whatever. You know? <laughs> he actually has never read a novel. He's only read the book of him. That's true. That's, that's he has right. Not read that's a novel. right. No, he's exactly. a boy. Boys don't read novels. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, right, a boy like aristocrat boys. No, I mean he like he, you know, yeah. I mean, nor- he should have read Northanger Abbey because it would have taught him some things here. You know, but learn uh, a thing or two. So yeah. Anyway, so Frederick sees Mister Elliot flirting with Anne, and he gets super jealous, which makes Anne like you know hornier because she knows he's getting jealous. But Anne knows, uh, you know. So actually, and and he, there's no danger here regarding the Frederick Anne relationship because Anne has kind of pieced together that Mister Elliot is actually a big piece of crap. Um, because she, this friend of hers that he's screwed over in various ways has kind of told her and, and, Anne, and, and anyway, Anne is still, I mean, Frederick is Wetworth is still her one love object, right? So things come to a head when Frederick hears Anne debating whether men or women are more constant lovers, uh, with this other Navy friend. Kill me. Kill me. Yeah. 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 So he hears Anne say this, uh, I should, I should deserve utter contempt if I dared to suppose the true attachment and constancy were known only by woman. No, I believe you are capable of everything great and good in your married lives. I believe you equal to every important exertion to every domestic forbearance. So long as if I may be allowed the expression, so long as you have an object, I mean, while the woman you love lives and lives for you, all the privilege I claim for my own sex, it is not a very enviable one. You need not covet it, is that of loving longest when the existence or when hope is gone. Which, man, I, like, I'm sorry, I that line always fucking chokes me up. And, like, it's it, it chokes me up because, like, there is such just fucking psychological tension with this protagonist, with Anne Elliot. And it's just like. I mean, as, as like, as, you know, as, as awful as, as what's implied in that line is there's just like such a sense of like this fucking like tension of misery that is in it that I, I, anyway, I just I, like, yeah, it's fucking weird. But every time I get to that, I just like, yeah, it, it I, I choke up. So I don't know. No, um, it, I mean, I'll, I'll for sure give that to you without, without reservation because she really thinks she's going to be alone forever. She does. Yeah. I, yeah, yeah, I think so too. Yeah. Yeah. And or yeah, any I mean, even if she has started to suspect that there might be something there with Fred, it's it still feels so like a pipe dream to her. And so like, yeah, I mean, I think that that, that possibility is still very much like staring staring her right in the face. What um, I feel for her, I don't have that same sort of like, let's you know, let's go drink fucking whiskey sours like I do with uh the Bennett's. But yeah. yeah. I, I feel for her, of course, yeah. Yeah, and and it is it, it it just it also just I think again underscores like how how very different of a set of themes that this novel explores than, than some of the others, uh, while also having a lot of common all of these for sure. But any and and so Frederick overhears this and he gets very excited and also very kind of choked up and scribbles off a note to her like middle school style <laughs> so he can propose marriage again. <laughs> Do you like me? Check yes or no. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of like, yeah, it's it's basically like, guys, yes, if you like me, you know, like, look at me once and I shall know or something like yeah. that, you know. 
And yeah, and he's made a ton of money capturing French ships. So now Anne's horrible family is okay with this. And the novel ends with this line. Anne was tenderness itself, and she had the full worth of it in Captain Wentworth's affection. His profession was all that could ever make her friends wish that tenderness less. The dread of a future war, all that could dim her sunshine. She gloried in being a sailor's wife, but she must pay the tax of quick alarm for belonging to that profession, which is, if possible, more distinguished in its domestic virtues than in its national importance. And that's the end of the novel. And I just want to mark a couple things in that, like, one, suddenly we are in the t- present tense. And mm-hmm. also that profession, which seem, you would think applies to the Navy, seems instead to imply to being the sailor's wife, which I think yeah. is is yeah. very uh, like a striking. I mean, a lot of people have commented on that. So anyway, it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a, a way that suddenly. Yeah, I mean, just the presentness of that ending is is itself uh, very, uh, very remarkable. And just it, it's it's a departure from what we've been reading up to that point. Well, um, even and, something and, like uh, national importance as being the last words. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's bonkers. There's well, none of that anywhere. There's not even national unimportance. <laughs> no, yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. Well, and 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 that you know because her other uh, published novels to this point had kind of. Yeah, well, I mean, Mansfield Park is, you know, in the the imperial economy and like the slave trade is 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 definitely a theme. But it's like there is a way you can read those novels as being kind of hermetically sealed in these country houses. And suddenly it's like, whoa, shit, we're on like the world historical now, like just, you know, which is it's it's a very uh, dramatic move, among other things. It's kind of wild. Okay, so give us the context, whatever we need with respect to Austin. Yeah, sure. And I'll say, if, I mean, one just about kind of the, that hit, like the, it, which will help us with that kind of like telescoping moment. This was the last novel that Austin completed. Uh, so she died in the summer of 1817. We're not entirely sure of what, but a lot of people have, have suspected Hodgkin's lymphoma. Persuasion comes out alongside Northanger Abbey, which funnily enough was one of the first full novels that she completed, uh, probably around like 1799. And so there's a really interesting publication history uh, there that, w- that we'll get into sometime. So like both Persuasion and Northanger uh, come out in December of 1817. They have an 1818 imprint. And so it's a kind of strange situation. Um, they're wildly different books, one from very early in Austin's career and the other at the very end of it. And readers get them both at the same time. Um, and it it is like, I don't know, when, when I teach these, I often do teach Northanger and then Persuasion. It is kind of a jarring, like, uh, you know, opposition there between just their styles and everything else. There are, are very interesting points of intersection that because we're not talking about Northanger Abbey, I won't mention, but. No, yeah, I, I but we should, I mean, well, I'll, we will I'll def- at some point. Yeah, I'll definitely do Northanger at some point. And so we should, I mean, yeah, but like we'll, we'll have time to get into those for sure. Okay, yeah. Um, it's also with persuasion that readers finally learned who Austin was uh, via the biographical note that her brother Henry published. And I have to say, I'm really not trying to duck on Henry Austin here, uh, who he had just lost his sister. And yes, there were a ton of cultural prejudices about women and women writers in the early 19th century that he had to balance as he tried to promote his sister's work and to kind of create this public persona for her memory that would be treated kindly. But especially from a 21st century perspective, it is just an obnoxious note and I think kind of sets up a lot of the more dismissive bullshit lines that have characterized Austin's reception for the last two centuries. And and I don't just, you know, and I don't mean readers who don't like her. Like, I, I mean, the, the appreciative 
quote unquote appreciative misogynist line of criticism that's like, oh, she was so modest despite her great skill and she was too virtuous to ever think she had any skill at all. And didn't she just know her place in giving the, us these wonderful little domestic comedies with such clear morals, which as a Marxist critic who loves Austin precisely for how incisive her social critique is and as an 18th centuryist who loves her for being what I think is very much part of a long line of excellent satire that includes people like Swift. I'm mm-hmm. just like, what the fuck are you talking about? You She's know? a huge bitch. So this idea that like she really knew her place is like, have you have you Bing Bingley? Have you read like, yes. in the yes. way Mr. she characterizes some people? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and, and I think like pretty much all of Austin's feminist, Marxist, queer, and post-colonial theory fans would would agree with me. With think, me on no, it. I don't think we're saying anything that's actually controversial. <laughs> no, not at all. But I mean, and it's like to this day, you will still see criticism by actual ass academics that like reproduce some of that shit. It's it's remarkable. Yeah, but so anyway, as an example, here here's what Henry tells us about his sister. Short and easy will be the task of the biographer a life of usefulness literature and religion was not by any means life of event like oh she never did don't worry she never did anything to those who lament their irreparable loss it is consolatory to think that as she never deserved disapprobation so in the circle of her family and friends she never met reproof that her wishes were not only reasonable but gratified that to the little disappointments incidental to human life was never added even for a moment an abatement of goodwill from any who knew her I know. It's like, what? And then, and then a little later, uh, th- this is amazing. One trait only remains to be touched on. It makes all others unimportant. She was thoroughly religious and devout, fearful of giving offense to God, and incapable of feeling it towards any fellow creature. On serious subjects, she was well instructed, both by reading and meditation. Her biddings accorded strictly with those of our established church. It's like, okay, one, like, I mean, no, like, I mean, there's writings where she's like, well, hey, actually, maybe we should, uh, you know, the evangelical seem a lot better uh you know like the methodists and stuff on things like slavery and shit like that maybe we should do that instead um also clergymen are like her most prominent satiric targets across novels you know so like you know what i I think i've come to the i've come to a conclusion here which is you know and i know i'm gonna die but don't give me a short bitch obituary because that's what this is this is for a short broad this is for someone who was really nice yeah except not at all (laughs) Exactly. exactly. That's that's true tragedy. So again, not trying to dunk on Henry Austin here, who's who I do think I am. is trying. <laughs> I mean, he's okay. She, his sister just died. He's trying to do her a good turn and like establish her as a major literary figure. Um, you know, and being cognizant of the gender biases of the age, but. Like, again, that that sort of lie was just so dominant for such a long time and still does characterize some writing about Austin. And actually, like Eve Sedgwick in her phenomenal essay, really landmark study in queer and gender theory, Jane Austen and the Masturbating Girl, which you should read that now. Like, you should read that right now. It's amazing. Turn the podcast off. Yep, for yes. sure. Turn it off. <laughs> she notes all these critics who have been very, very into Austen um, as so, like, controlled and controlling of her women protagonists, which like per Sedgwick, who is right. Um, yeah, for sure does have some DS overtones in a very misogynistic way. And like with persuasion is her last work completed in her, uh, Austin's forties. And that she's becoming quite ill. This is also how other novels of her, uh, of Austin's have been read as well. It's like, Oh, well see, she's the spinster and never married. And isn't that interesting? Mm. And isn't that like why she's talking about Anne's bloom being gone? And, just again, just sigh, you know. <laughs> like, uh, but I like I do think it's Russell. It is. I don't, it's, I, it's just like, are you in high school? 
It's exceedingly facile. It is wildly misogynist, and yeah, it yeah, it's it's just it's a dumb line. It's a, it it is truly a toddler thought. It is I, like I at the same. I do think it's fair to wonder if persuasion has a certain elegiac quality to it, but I find that a bit hard to sustain in light of the intensely of the present focus of that ending, right? Um, and the sense that like Anne and Frederick's life is kind of beginning anew, which is not like elegiac at all, right? And and you know like th- these are lives that don't just stop when you get married at twenty or whatever, right? Like so. But she's definitely sick as she's writing it and thinking quite ac- acutely about the meaning of the age in the past. Uh, so I do think it's worth considering. And so this is the last thing I'll say, just kind of the history, the historical landscape. And so to help us make sense of this, I'll point listeners uh, to friend of the pod, Deidre Lynch's wonderful introduction in her Oxford edition of Persuasion, which cites a lot of excellent criticism and, and, and really argues the case as to how we have to understand persuasion as both deeply conscious of history in a retrospective sense of, of, uh, of the vantage point of historical distance being how we reconcile with and, and make sense of the past. But also history in a very Marxist sense of an active, like dialectical unfolding in a field of broad structural relations. So, for example, Lynch starts uh, her essay, her introductory essay, by pointing out that the day Austin started persuasion, the the eighth of August, eighteen fifteen, is the same day that Napoleon left Britain as a prisoner bound for Saint uh, Saint Helena, which is where he would die. And so, remember, the British had captured Napoleon once before. They imprisoned him on Elba. This happens in 1814. That's in the Mediterranean. He escapes, tries to do Terminator 2, um, and, <laughs> and, 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 and he gets defeated at Waterloo for the last time in 1815, and, and the British decide to send him to one of the most remote pieces of land on Earth that you could get to. So two de- decades of global war finally over. Um, there's a peace that seems to be lasting, and, and like what had been perceived as this existential threat to the British ruling class of like the Jacobins and then Napoleon, um, you know, fuck these people Uh, like that's over like and but, you know, so we know the Napoleonic Wars were truly over now. There's a good sense of that in August of 1815 when Austin starts writing, but it's like less determinate. Right. And, And Lynch points out that persuasion is actually set in that interlude between Napoleon getting exiled, uh, for the first time and his return. So Persuasion's readers would have known how things would shake out, but the characters do not. And the peace they're currently enjoying is actually under a lot of threat. Um, and, and that's the backdrop uh, w- uh, against which Lynch argues. And, and I very much agree that we have to, to read the entire novel. And yeah, so I'll just I'll wrap up by quoting Lynch's take on that ending, which I think is, is fantastic. The revolution, which one instant had made in Anne, was almost beyond expression. In this sentence, the choice of the word revolution works as so much else in Persuasion does, to place Anne in the midst of the historical life of an era that had just begun and did not know where it was going. So yeah, anyway, that's uh, that, that's that's the context or some of it. <laughs> so we had been sort of like, uh, in our notes, we all talked about this, like the problem of the body that feels mm-hmm. so central here, both in the, in the like Louisa bonking her head, at, uh, really hard, like really hard, not bonk. And then the kid breaking his collarbone, but also the sort of like this feminized genre of fading or the masculinized genre of like toughening up mm-hmm. oranging up oranging up so what is that it's different in this like i don't know she doesn't otherwise seem obsessed with that austin i mean it is a weird it, it's a super weird thing and i do wonder to take it back to the the old old nelson that i didn't have to look at anything to know that i just knew um <laughs> missing an arm and an eye in his portraits and if we do want to make a connection there it seems like the 
implication is that these kinds of being maimed, I guess, just in the course of ordinary events are as meaningful or meaningless as the wounds of a of a big sailing guy. Yeah, that's interesting. It, it is well, and it's like what's striking is that despite Sir Walter's quip and 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 you know Mrs. Clay's quip of you know sailors do grow old betimes. The sailors of this novel are like remarkably healthful. Like they're they're the like the vigorous like men of empire, which is I want to be clear is I like I am not endorsing Austin's like yay royal navy like perspective. But nobody like, here, yeah. But no, I, yeah. So so one a funny thing about Nelson, like he was one of the he's still one of the only commoners, meaning not a royal in in British history, to have been a, a given a state funeral. So like he is like a national superstar like at that moment, and yeah. Like, I mean, his, his like official portrait, I mean, you can see the, the, the injuries. And so like, yeah, I mean, so like maybe like, okay, but like that lad actually is like, could be just as, uh, or like that, that, that not just as, but like that the bodies on land also decay in, in, in similar ways. Um, yeah, yeah. uh, I, sorry, just one, I, I have to like get this in cause I get to dork out about boats, but, um, <laughs> I of course have been, I of course have been aboard HMS victory, which is uh, still a commission in, in dry oh, dock yes. in, in, in Portsmouth. And, we all know this. Yes. Uh, you get to see the spot where Nelson was shot uh, and killed. And you also get to see in his quarters, his seabed, which is this tiny little child's cradle looking of a thing. So you're just imagining this like very <laughs> small by modern standards, like dude who's like had an arm shot on, at, at an eye, just like <laughs> barking orders at this 800 like mad <laughs> ship. And like, yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. Anyway, um, I just had to throw that out there. <laughs> I like that you said we get to see. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. Get yeah. To see it. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway. Uh, did your, uh, did um, hero of the podcast, CK, also come with you on this trip? <laughs> yes, my, yes. My, 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 this was yet another moment in which my wife had indulged my, my dorkdom. Yes, for sure. <laughs> really, really a heroic human being. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. I I hope that she likes something um old that that floats. <laughs> I mean she's a, she, she, you got to see. I mean she, you know she's a classics major so she likes plenty of old stuff too. Oh, good. Okay. Uh, <laughs> well, I hope you have to look at it too. You got to look at it. <laughs> Yeah, but but I, I do think like that you know it's like okay right, but I mean but bodies on land still decay and you know and also maybe a suggestion that like well I mean bodies at sea decay because they're like involved in active work of a kind again this is not to endorse like imperialism but you know they're they're like physically like risking something whereas like bodies on land decay because you're like of this class of this kind of right. class position because you're kind of sitting around waiting for shit to happen. And often never does. And then you kind of shit's boring and you die or something like that. The most dangerous thing you're going to be doing is giving birth. Yeah. Oh, good yes. point. Yeah. Yes. That's the yes. that's the danger zone. And beyond that, there's not a ton. I mean, yeah. childhood ailments, I guess, too. But that's where the site of all of it is. These yeah. kids seem annoyingly healthy, though. Yeah, the they can still climb even with broken bones. So, And it's not just like people aging – 
or breaking their head like a Louisa. It's also just like the, the bot, this book is so attuned to just like physicality in ways that, I mean, sometimes are quite cruel. So there's this one moment where, so like Mrs. Musgrove, uh, like, so this, this is, this is Mary's husband's mom. Mm-hmm. And like, they had this boy who was like a dipshit and he went into the Navy and like Wentworth had kind of taken him under his wing and the boy ended up dying. And Mrs. Musgrove's kind of like, Oh, please tell me about my, about my son. Uh, yeah. So, and, and so Mrs. Musgrove's like, yes, please tell me about my, about my boy. This is, this is chapter eight of volume one. And like the novel, like tells you again and again, that Mrs. Musgrove is very large. Right. And it says, uh, so it's, they they were actually on the same sofa for Mrs. Musgrove had most readily made room for him for Frederick Wentworth. Uh, and so Anne's on the other side of Mrs. Musgrove. They were divided only by Mrs. Musgrove. It is no insignificant barrier indeed. Mrs. Musgrove was of a comfortable, substantial size, infinitely more fitted by nature to express good cheer and good humor than tenderness and sentiment. And while the agitations of Anne's slender form and pensive face may be considered as very completely screened, Captain Wentworth should be allowed some credit for the self-command with which he attended to her large fat signs over the destiny of a son whom alive nobody had cared for. Personal size and mental sorrow have certainly no necessary proportions. A large bulky figure has as good uh, right to be in deep affliction as the most graceful set of limbs in the world. But fair or not fair, there are unbecoming conjunctions which reason will patronize in vain, which taste cannot tolerate, which ridicule will seize. It's like, what the fuck? Right? Yeah. Like, and, and I just. And, when and he's so, heroic for even like talking to her. Yeah. Yeah. About their son that died? Yeah. Yeah. That he even knew though it really well. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, he, yeah, exactly. And I just, oh, and actually, you know, I've credited conversations in classes uh, for really kind of like, oh, yeah, like, I mean, to, to sort of think more about that and how that like might fit with a kind of, the the sort of like, uh, like economies of bodies in this novel. But I mean, like, okay, so on one hand, she's being compared in some way to like Anne's thinness, which is already yes. very like, what the fuck? But it is just, it's it's like a very kind of cruel, like body focused moment that I just don't, get but i think it probably does have some relationship to a sense of like just the body on like the body at the country estate or something like that or the bodies of the upper class or something like that well they seem to be like either quite thin or this fat version right like they all all bodies deserve scrutiny but only some of them deserve it in a in a mean-spirited way right but she also like in this one in particular goes through she's like well elizabeth isn't as pretty as anne but anne isn't as pretty as mary i don't actually remember which one yeah, it is yeah but yeah. she gives us a whole catalog of it early on and never in a funny way like again no. in pride and prejudice you're like well we know that jane is prettier than elizabeth but only by virtue of like men's perception yeah <laughs> the fact that she's named jane the yeah. fact that she's named jane and also that elizabeth has brown hair but right. here it seems like it's a part of empirically part of Jane Austen's point of view. Yeah. 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 And and it tries to like pull pull back from it a bit and that basically saying that like there shouldn't be any kind of like link between like the physical body and how we like stereotype then the character and the person. But then it's like, but it, th- we're doing it anyway. And it's like, yeah. okay, that just, I mean, it, it's like, it's a sort of uncharacteristically shitty moment, you know, and, and I think it's just fair to kind of like <laughs> sort of call that out. But, you know, I like, like the version of Jane Austen that makes fun of people for being morons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, where is the irony? I was this is a Jane Austen novel. I was promised irony. Yeah. Well, and I mean, 
you know, like to lead just the description of Mrs. Musgrove there aside, it's also, I mean, like, yeah, like their son sucked, but <laughs> and he's dead still, but like their son fucking died. <laughs> yeah. Just, like, you know, and, and war. They're still going to be sad about their shithead son. Yeah. I, yeah, I just, I, sorry, I like, I wish I, I wish I had a way. Well, here is how we reconcile this with other things happening in the novel. And I don't know that I do other than just like that the novel's like, yeah, I mean, so like, you know, bot like bodies don't like maintain their like ideal form. Right. And like, mm-hmm. we've got to, we've got to, um, you know, again, and I want to put scare quotes around that, but we've got to, um, We've got to like, as particularly as we get older or something, we've got to just like accept that or reckon with it in some way. Um, oh, unless right. So maybe this is one of the reasons that Sir Walter is like held up as this model of vanity is yeah. is as a a counterpoint. Yeah, right. Well, that's the thing. Like he, like he, he is still like a you know beautiful dude, and is just but completely psychologically empty. You know, and and so yeah. that 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 actually like maybe that like one thing we're we're seeing there is like you know the novels being cruel to to Mrs. Musgrove, but it's also suggesting that like like people like society broadly is, and that when we think about that in conjunction with like Sir Walter, we see how like kind of hollow that is and, and that actually like sir walter's like good looks index nothing other than his own vacuity so the thing that gets me confused or not confused but a little tripped up about the fact that this is mrs musgrove that we're talking about here is that what is the relevance to the i mean i i buy that it is about bodies decaying on the land i i'm all in on that for sure I also think this particular instance serves no function. Yeah, I agree. Weird, like, I can see it serving a function if she were trying to get married or if it if it were some kind of her husband struggled to tend to her whatever fat sighings, you know, if it were some sort of con- bone of contention between the two of them or something. But this is just, it just feels like, she wrote the mean thing about an imaginary fat lady. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. Walter is, you're totally right, Tristan. Like the way that Walter is characterized tells us something important. Like his vanity and his like gorgeous man without a brain is, is something where we can join together the physical and the internal, but this isn't, it's just, just mean spirited. Yeah. She's explicitly saying you can't do that too which is you can't do that but you'd want to well and and i i mean like you know i I just find the musgroves generally like a less uh there's less to target that that whole the whole family other than like mary because like they're they're um you know they're 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 kind of rich dipshits, but like not nearly to the level of pretension of like the Elliot because they don't have like the arist- aristocracy like fixations and and so like yeah it's just I mean she she she's not you know they're like um yeah she just appears like suddenly as this like this person that's made been made comic uh in this in this in this kind of cruel way um for yeah I agree I I don't know it, yeah I mean maybe there's not a ton to say of it other than it is it's just kind of like a mean moment in the text that unlike most of Austin's mean moments don't really take us. <laughs> in, in uh, that productive of places i mean she suffers she suffers so much more than Anne. in fact in yeah this book yeah yeah 
Yeah. Her kid goes kersplat on medieval rocks. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean that's yeah, and, that that yeah. It's you're you're right. I mean, not we can't like that. Louisa falling off the cob does not. Uh, it just is not in the comic register at all. No, no. It, even though it's like I said, I I feel like it's set up a little bit that way. Yeah, totally. Yeah, because I'm reading a Jane Austen novel, and so I have certain expectations of what's going to be funny. Yeah, I I do think so. It's. This novel seems quite hostile to the reader in a way that is different than her other novels. Yeah. No, I mean, Katie, actually, I would be curious to hear more from, you know, you on that point. Um, and cause, you know, and I kind of started with uh, that, like, oh, you know, no one says that this is the, the funnest to read, but like they, you know, I, but I think it's, you know, the most interesting or, or some bullshit like that. <laughs> like, right. I, what, I mean, what, like, what do you make of this novel compared to some of her others? And how, how can we think about it's, it's like stylistic differences? I, I think in some ways she's kicking you out of her novels. Yeah. yeah. And I think that – so this is not – this is I think this has been said about a billion times about uh, Austin's ironic distance. But you can take any line you know, uh, like there it was a truth universally acknowledged or whatever. Uh, shit, I wish I, I wish I know it have been good uh, that a lady will want a husband. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Immediately you go, no, it's not, and then right. you're like, oh, it's a joke. Okay, right. So the way that I've heard it talked about is that this truth universally acknowledged thing is about precluding that there being that there is an actual truth, and that by doing that, it's. Austin is appropriating everything, all of truth, and leaving you out against her in a way that is still playful. Yeah. And this, there is none of that. There's no space for any kind of playing between the reader and the author. Like, there's no, there's not a lot of, there's no winking, there's no joking, there's no, there's none of those fun little moments where it's like, I know this is a novel and I know you're reading it. Yeah, no, not not at all. And and again, I mean, I like the fact that the, like Northanger Abbey, which is like mo- maybe her most overtly comic. I mean, Pride and Prejudice is plenty comic, but that this came out like right with <laughs> Persuasion is pretty wild. And yeah, I mean, I you know, like you do wonder a little bit, like as I said, the kind of elegiacness of it, but like that there, but you know, that doesn't like go into like a, a like a pure kind of tragedy, but instead like a, the, the really the kind of heightened tensions of the present or the, 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 like the, the fever mm-hmm. pitch of history that it's building towards um, just like necessity. Well, and, and also, yeah, like, I mean that it's a novel that starts with a loss of a kind rather than, you know, that starts with just like kind of a lot of possibilities maybe, um, it, it has yeah. has to change that. I mean, I do think it, the fact that the heroine and and you know the the the, the male protagonist are uh, are older is uh, is important uh, to this. I mean, I think I think it absolutely is. Yeah, yeah. You know, well, just, you're reminding just, me that like our sort of you know affection for historicist readings is different from novels that think of themselves as historical in a yeah. in a strong way. Yeah. Right. So that just like demands yeah. a shifting set of methodologies. I don't mean that in a, a, as an affront to anybody, but like that's just a thought. Yeah. 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 No, I think that, yeah, makes a lot of sense. 
Yeah. And, and that, you know, that, well, so, I mean, the, so the, his, so history like does sort of like, you know, like famously sort of like, uh, come in in a, in a, like a threatening way in Mansfield park with just the knowledge of the, 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 the Bertram estate like rests on the sugar trade. But like, I also think that like, yeah, like the wartime setting of this, which I mean, it's true in pride and prejudice, but it's just like so much more readily apparent here that there's just a, there's like a stakes of the moment, like on at both the personal level, but also the the kind of world historical level that just, it can't like, you know, it can't be satiric in the same way. It can't be as like, kind of like playful, but it's not, it's also like, I mean, like, you know, it, it does end on like a lot of kind of possibility in the ending, but it's, it's like possibility that's quite fraught with like violence and danger and, and just the knowledge. Yeah. I mean, the knowledge of, you know, of, of, of death and decay, um, but not like dwelling, staying there either. Right. Like that it's, it's, um, I don't know. Uh, but, but there's just, it is like, everyone's got to deal with history. They got to look at it. Yeah. You got to look at it, get your nose out of the book and go yeah. see what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's play a game. Okay. About history. No, I don't know what it's about. <laughs> it's uh, about nothing edifying as history. So that's cool um, too. We we're we're saving the Cooper for the Cooper episode, but a lot of people in this book just want to get engaged to like whatever dude, as long as they're cousins. It's just very important that they be fancy. <laughs> and I think one of the main lessons is that. You before you get involved, you might want to ask a couple questions, right? And so I took to the internet <laughs> and found a little something to help anyone, anyone listening, anyone here who might be renewing their vows or getting married, et cetera, et cetera, other marriage-ish things, engagements, yes, that too. And it's a it's a little book called 101 Questions to Ask Before You Get Engaged. <laughs> Is it written and by be- a religious nut? Yes. Okay, I'm just making sure. <laughs> you know, I, I know that you have a fondness for religious nuts, and so I'm checking. <laughs> I don't want to hang out with them. but um, So it begins with a warning. Warning. There's a warning label. Never get engaged or married to a stranger. Years ago, there was a very popular love song, Getting to Know You. Getting to know all about you. Well, that's probably the best advice to follow if you're thinking of engagement. Pretty sure that's a children's song. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So anyway, then there's a, a the, the, the extended metaphor about cars. But to get to the 101 questions, the questions are unhinged and absurd, of course, obviously. But we're not going to answer them. What we're going to do is figure out how much persuasion, that's right, persuasion, persuasion by jane austen would be required for you to get involved in any one of these cursed discussions scale of one to ten and we'll know who's the most persuadable on this podcast no one do anything evil with that knowledge okay so here is the first question what are five reasons a person would want to spend the rest of their life with you and three reasons they wouldn't and the question is how how much would this person have to threaten me for me to answer the question? Uh, Threaten, yeah. New Jersey persuasion is threatening, yes. (laughs) Um, So yeah, how much, how much would you, you're, okay, here, here, this'll, this'll help. Uh, This'll fix everything. Okay, clip, clop, clip, clop, the sound of horses. Oh, we're in olden day times and you're in a carriage 
with an obnoxious fucking old timey therapist yeah. and your beloved. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, so you can steer the conversation. How bad are you? How much are you trying to steer the conversation off of this one? <laughs> Scale of one to 10. Five, you have to come up with five reasons you're great and three that you suck. Yeah. I mean, well, like, I don't and know. none of them can be about uh, having a big, juicy butt. <laughs> oh, no, they can. They can. That's a perfectly legitimate reason. I mean, you know, like, as a typical academic with imposter syndrome, I, you know, I mean, this is the kind of thing that is just going to make me spiral into my own anxiety. So, I mean, I'm going to be trying really hard to, like, persuade out of it. Like, you want me to sell myself? Like, I don't, I don't, I mean, there's a reason why I don't, you know, do the job market and stuff anymore. I don't, I don't like talking about myself. You know? I mean, I think I'm going to go with um, feeling carriage sick and make myself yeah. barf out the window. Yeah. Yeah. That's commitment. That's a good wait. So I'm I'm trying to figure out a specific way of getting out of this. No, you're just telling me how bad you um, want to to, to jump, out, to of the jump out of the carriage. Yeah. Oh, um, I think like a like a six. Like I don't want to answer them, but I can yeah. think of worse things this therapist is going to pose to me. Yeah. Yeah. That is the risk. Is that there are more questions? Yeah. Oh man. Um. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I'm a little bit. I maybe like a seven. okay we've done too many of these quizzes and know that there's always like a much worse yeah question on the other side there's a much worse question there's a much more ridiculous question on the other side here's another one this is weird this is what you're supposed to ask before you get engaged one of the 101 when a person marries they sever the cord of dependency on and allegiance to their parents so bye bye parents boom Mm. out you go if you marry which of these will be the most difficult to sever and why? <laughs> Wait, so which parent do I like more and would have a harder time breaking my allegiance from? So I, like, that's how I read the question. Oh my God. Which is, in, <laughs> which is so nuts. 10. Oh my God. Yes. Like oh, oh my God. My parents listened to the show. So even like that, these are all in hypotheticals. I'm just, this is 10, you know? <laughs> yeah, this is, a, this is a no zone. I yeah. mean, I think it's really high too, like a nine or a 10. The, the only difference being that my parents are not married to each other. So I don't think that they would like yeah. collaborate in, to punish me in some way, but Tristan, your parents are right. No, exactly, exactly. So, and and like I, you know, if I had, you know, if I had just like been arguing with my parents about something, then maybe I would use this as an opportunity to exact revenge. But you know, <laughs> sure, but, yeah, or totally, or, you're getting or, in the spirit of the question. Or also, like, oh, you say you listen to the podcast. Well, I'm going to leave this little Easter egg in here. For oh, <laughs> good call. Uh, I'm too old to play my parents against each other yeah i think this book is suggesting that i am 21 no i know i was just gonna say like this this seems like a very like not 40 year old book you know? yeah yep so here's oh megan so what's your number you're also 10 are you are you going with 10 no, or are you i'm just gonna go with eight because like it's horrible but okay but my parents won't talk to each other about it so i just think tristan's in a slightly worse position right right right, right. Right, right, right. No, that's, that's, that's fair enough. 
Um, also, okay. there, I have enough siblings and step siblings for this to be like dispersed among more people. Oh, hey, all right. So you're you gotta sever sever yeah. a lot, you know. Like they're mad at me for for saying I'd sever you more, but you know, one of my sisters sever you more. <laughs> one of my sisters is gonna fuck something up, and then I'll be off the hook. Yeah. <laughs> all right, yeah, strat strategy. I like it. I like it. Um, okay, this is I. This is so you're you're getting married to somebody you're gonna get it you're getting engaged and you should ask this for sure what are the questions you have at this point in your life about sex do you wish you knew more when it comes to sex do you wish you knew less do you wish you knew less uh oh well now we're getting the 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 uh the, the religious orientation of it right do you oh yeah i can't it must be it. less less that i could know would be better right. like, well, like yeah, yeah i mean i understand it if it's yeah i don't know what lemon party is <laughs> oh man say that that is actually about like related to marital sex though like i <laughs> i don't think that has to be part of the story Oh, no <laughs> man um no. one i i know all i i know all about the sex <laughs> a, 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 ama no please don't <laughs> no please don't. <laughs> please do not send emails no. like where do babies come from ama <laughs> yeah that's right i know oh, yeah i was actually yeah i just We've read uh, lawrence stern i just yeah i just i just i just uh re- reread uh the the uncle toby uh well <laughs> where do babies come from it's like i i see i i'm wiser than both of them so anyway <laughs> wow oh that's like a 10 under no circumstances am i answering that question yeah i agree i mean uh, yes uh, it, it in reality yes ted percent. <laughs> okay. i mean this is this is a real this is a real easy one. Megan, congratulations. You are the more persuadable. You were the persuasion <laughs> of persuasion. You're you're open to to things like um religious what, religious conversion. Yes. I mean this this shit is like fully psycho. I no, didn't even get into it. It's funny. It. Megan is the Megan's the more persuadable because she answered nine once when I answered ten. It's like <laughs> yeah. I'm yeah, like a six and a seven, in, yeah. In all honesty, I'm not I'm not answering any of these questions, you know. No. Because no. everyone is a fucking psycho. Yeah. When they're like, people take the institution of marriage awfully seriously, I guess, is what I mean. <laughs> I also, sorry, I, mean, I just want to circle back. Like, the, the, the others are like, yeah, I mean, the more uncomfortable ones. There is some, I mean, and this is why I, one of the many reasons I hate the corporate world so much. There is something deeply psychotic about being like, oh, yeah, I'd love to talk about how great I, it's like, what is wrong with you? Like, if you could just sit there and rattle yeah. off five things that you think are fantastic about yourself at one time, it's like, this is, I mean, <laughs> you know, like, nice. Like, give me a strength and a weakness. And yeah. Give me a weakness is actually a strength. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah, exactly. It's it's like I feel like it, you know, if that does not bother you, then you should go into corporate world. You know, <laughs> but- right? If that seems like a perfectly legitimate thing to find out that there are five things better, good about yourself, and one of them is not your yeah. big juicy butt, then yeah. <laughs> you better think twice. I like Wordle, and I have a mm. big butt. <laughs> That's two. You got three more. Oh, right, but those ones are going to be. The, the, they will require a degree of self reflection on my part that I am absolutely unprepared for. That's fair enough. Absolutely fair. 
Anyway, thanks, guys. This has been Better Red Than Dead. You can find me on Twitter at Tussersaurus. You can find Tristan on Twitter at TJ Schweiger. You can find Katie on Twitter at Katie Crywo. You can find the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Better Red Pod. And email us at betterredpodcast at gmail.com. But only if um, you want to tell us why you love a sailor. Because we love a sailor. <laughs> we like their buns. We like their boats. They seem like good guys. It's Fleet Week. No, <laughs> our intro music is left Bronstein by the Redskins and used with their permission. Our logo is created by Jane Bonsack of JB Design and Content. Please rate, review, and subscribe. Next week, we have Lady Chatterley's Lover. <laughs> uh, <laughs> woohoo! Dick's out for fash. Lawrence, not a nice guy. It's going to be great. And um, Richard Steele's version of the Inkle and Yarko story on deck after that. So thanks, comrades. Sail the seven seas in the navy. Yes, you can put your mind at ease.